Hey there, Freedom Fighters. Joining me for a repeat visit is Jesse Puji. Ten years ago, I interviewed him about how Ampush, this uh, ad buying, and I guess you did more than ad buying back then, didn't you, Jesse? It was lead gen and, and ad, ad buying, and we built software for Facebook. So we had a, a few different pieces of the business. And it was shocking to have talked to you 10 years ago back in like 2011 about how well it was doing because most people thought of Facebook as this little thing that is just a waste of time, that investors pour too much money into it. Meanwhile, look at how big it's gotten. And also, you were doing a million dollars a month from what I remember back then at a time when, oh, I like how your eyes just lit up when I said that, at a time when the world was still thinking the internet wants to be free and uh, software maybe is where it's at, but not really profitable. Anyway, you were showing a lot of different things from what everyone else was doing. And so I did a gee whiz, look at this guy interview with you. <laughs> and then I did a course with you, a masterclass here on Mixergy. And I remember even little things stuck with me. Like you, I said, tell me what kind of ads are working. And you said, Andrew, it's not even about the type of ads, it's about this opportunity that's here in social, but all right, fine, you want type of ads. I'll tell you that when we put a red box around an ad, people pay more attention to it and they click it. And I thought, all right, this whole thing is really interesting. Well, anyway. I uh, kind of lost touch with Jesse, and then a while back, he got active on Twitter, and I realized that he was like this this person that others were looking up to, and I remember him being the person that most people ignored, and I thought, I got to get him on here on Mixergy to talk about what's happened with Ampush, this company that uh, pioneered online ad buying in social. And then what he's doing with direct-to-consumer products because he's created this company called Gateway X that seems a little mysterious to me but is um, involved in poo something or was and a couple of other direct-to-consumer products and making investments. I want to find out where he is now, where he's taken this uh, early adopter understanding of social. And we can do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first will uh, help you launch a website and do it right. It's called HostGator, and you should sign up at HostGator.com slash Mixergy. The second will do your email marketing right and uh, not charge you a lot of money later on when you're dependent on them the way other email marketing companies do. It's called Send in Blue. Check them out at sendinblue.com slash Mixergy, but I'll talk about those later. Jesse, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm, I'm excited and I can't believe 10 years have passed because uh, honestly, that stuff feels like yesterday. How uh, how big did Ampush get? Last time we talked, it was about a monthly million revenue. Yeah, you know, uh, by the time, maybe like 2015, 16, and, and Ampush went through a couple different business models, which I'm happy to chat more about. Um, we we probably had upwards of $350 million in ad spend, you know, kind of the gross, gross revenue. Uh, we were we were running across the entire business through our platform. And your share of that? Sorry? And your share of that? How much was, was going to Ampush from that on a monthly basis? Yeah, it was like, think of it as, as a, you know, a take rate model. So it was something at that time, I think it was around, you know, uh, between 10 and 12%. Okay, that's impressive. No outside funding, profitable business. What's the craziest thing you bought for yourself? <laughs> um, ooh, what a good question. Uh, you know, the, the most distinctive in my memory is like we, when we sold a minority interest of the business in Red Ventures, I went and bought myself an M5 like the next day. That's a BMW. I don't know much about cars. Yeah, yeah, that's a BMW. That's, that's like, all you uh, got? It's, like, it's, it's very much my style because it's not, you know, 
it's like one of those cars that it's probably faster than most Porsches, but unless you're a car person, you probably wouldn't know it. It looks like a sedan. Like I had, I had my son the yeah. same year we had that exit. Um, and so it was like, I needed something that, you know, the kids could go into those four doors, but it was still, it's like a supercar. You know what? What's strange about you is that you didn't go all Hollywood considering like you're in a space where people did. Not only that, you're still wearing a turban in most of your photos. I swear I was expecting you to have buzzed your hair, gotten a different look. <laughs> That's funny. Did you ever consider that? Did you ever say, hey, you know what? This whole Sikh thing got me here, but I need to have fun, let my hair down, cut it. No. no, you know, it's, that's a great question. And, and, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not an easy question for a lot of people. I think the, you know, you, from the, from the day, you know, our son's six years old, he's in first grade. And from the day you're in, in preschool, I mean, pretty much within a few months or weeks, he knew he looked different. You know, he had something on his head and his hair was long and he, that that was unique. And, and I'd say, you know, the time I probably considered it the most was like, you know, the, the, the days of high school where like, I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted girls to talk to me. That was probably the, yeah. the deepest motivation I ever felt for it. If I'm being, if I'm being honest, yeah. but you know, for me, it was always this thing. And, and my parents, they didn't, so, some people really struggle with it, you know, and, and I know I have, a, I know a kid, uh, who went, I went to college, he was a couple years younger than me. And he was, he was the class president with a turban on his head. And I was so proud of him. And, and by junior year, he cut his hair and, and it was, it was a sad moment. I said, man, what, what you've, you know, you're, you're an Ivy league school, you're president, like, um, but everyone has their own journey with it. And, and, you know, it's, it's a part of it, differing parts of who you are. In my case, it was always a, the way I was taught about it, the way I related to it was always this unique differentiator and bonus for me, you know, and, and what's the hardest thing in business is like to be remembered. Well, when you're the, you know, one of 500 people at a conference with a turban on your head and you say some things, all of a sudden people remember you. And, and, and so that was what it was like for me in high school when I did student council and debate. That's what it was like for me in college, you know, uh, when I was in my early job things and as an entrepreneur. So for me, it's always felt like a bonus and something that uh, was really important to me and a distinctive identity that I, I really cherish. And so it does stand uh, out for me. I have to be honest. When I think of you, I think of the turban, I guess you might be the only Sikh that I've interviewed with who still maintains a turban. Obviously there are people like Ramit Sethi who are Sikhs, but you don't really fully know that that's sure. what they are unless you can read the bracelet and understand uh, because they cut their hair. Let me ask you, r religiously, are you spiritual? What is it that you believe and how does it impact your, your, frankly, since we care about business here, how does it impact your business? What do you believe and what does it do for you? Yeah. Yeah. What a great question. I, I've had such an interesting journey with this, you know, so my parents, um, you know, my mom was actually Hindu and converted when she married my dad and they had like a love marriage in India and, you know, in mm -hmm. the seventies. And that was very weird. Um, and then, you know, she adopted the religion. My, my, so my parents were always very, uh, made it ever present in our lives, but never forced it on us, which I think like, and I don't know that they, these things were strategic for them, but now I look back, I'm like, gee, that was a genius strategy. Like we got enough, we went to camps, you know, with other Sikhs and there was a couple of retreats and we'd go on Sundays to temple and, and, you know, it was um, so we were always, you know, we were around it, but never in a way that felt like it was being shoved down our throat and sort of let us opt into it. And I think that was important at the same time, you know, Sikhism as a, as a religion is a really unique blend of Western and Eastern. So, you know, the Western aspects of it are, it's, it's monotheistic. There's one God it, it professed in 15th century India that, uh, all people are equal, not, not all men, all people are equal. Um, and there's, and several other things like that, that feel very, you know, volunteer, give money, you know, there's all these things that feel very Western and then it's extremely Eastern in the sense that it's like, 
the only, you know, the, the path to God is not through church. It's not through following some set of rules. It's through meditation. It's just through thinking about God and, and the oneness of God or the oneness of the one, right? And there's not even the, the word God is not really used. It's just the oneness of one, right? That we're all just one thing. And so I was always attracted to the, to the doctrine, if you will, or the spirit, you know, the, the aspects of it. But I would I would see these family friends and people and I and I, I just I felt very disillusioned probably in you know the late teen years to the actual institution of it because I mean you know these people aren't practicing what they preach like this man doesn't treat his wife equally but that's what our religion says you're supposed to do and and I had these like kind of things and and so you know I was I was definitely that way and to tie in business you know about four or five years ago I started working with a coach and he uses this paradigm called the conscious leadership group, the you know, 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And I read this book and I, you know, I, as soon as I got done with it, I go, this just reminds me of Sikhism. <laughs> you know, I, I have to be, I have to be okay with the way the world is and I have to work on myself and I have to it, like, the, the, you know, the, the doctrine became almost, and they started to meld in my mind in a very unique way. But I think it's definitely a spiritual aspect. You know, it's like I meditate every day, um, I, you know, if I try to focus on myself, there's, there's, you know, trying to get very clear with my emotions or my stories and, and not being reactive to them, but being responsive to them, which very much cuts across both business and, and religion. What do you mean by your stories? What's a story that you tell yourself that could affect you negatively? Uh, you know, I, I think, I think anytime I think there's a, you know, someone not call me back. Is that a slight? I mean, I, yeah. the fact is they didn't call me back, but the story I might say is I was a slight or the story could say, man, maybe they're going through something tough or I can be kind to them and I can show up in a way that's, um, or, or, you know, numbers look crappy and my stories are like, ah, the business is going to fail. Right. And maybe the story is, oh, there's something really interesting to learn here. That's going to help us be even better next time around. So really starting to get, you know, hone in on that. Uh, the stories I make up around facts and and that's very much a conscious leadership concept, but also I see it mirrored in religion around d- disconnecting from your thoughts, you know, not believing your thoughts necessarily, but keeping them independent from, from your being, if you will. You know what? That happened to me the other day. Marin Kate, an entrepreneur that I've interviewed here, invited me to dinner with some friends. I had such a good time. Some people here were friends that I'd known for a decade and uh, I was drinking and having a good time talking. I sent her a text saying, thank you for inviting me. This felt great. She didn't respond back. And I, in my mind, I imagined that she was angry at me for something that I had said. And I, I said, well, this stinks. Why did I do it? Why did I have such a good time? I can't let myself go when there are people who I, I know from work. It's just not appropriate. And I made this whole story up. And finally, she texted me back. She said, oh, Andrew, this has been a great night. And, and I didn't respond back to her. And I realized I just let that happen for nothing, assumed so much. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and what, what in conscious leadership talks about this, and again, it's true in, in most things, is like when we do that, we create disconnection between people and, and ourselves. Like we disconnect, we, we make up a story and then we disconnect sort of our love. We, we say, oh, I, I got to cut off. I got to protect myself here and I'm no longer going to do this. Um, and, and I try my best when I find myself in those places, business or otherwise saying, hold on, what's the opposite of the story? Um, maybe this person's not responding cause they're incredibly busy. And I try to choose kindness and candor, which to me go hand in hand, by the way. Um, so I, you know, I might, if, if I really cared about that response, I might've said something like, Hey, everything. Okay. Like, uh, you know, uh, just as a check-in or, or maybe even a day later, if they didn't respond, I'd say, Hey, you know, you haven't responded to this. Like, 
I, I noticed myself worrying that maybe you're upset with me about something. Ah, yeah. And, and it's, that's the form of candor, which is just, it's not, it's not, it's not presuming to know anything. It's just sharing the actual story going through your mind. And man, it, it is a, it's a wonderful way to be connecting with people and a wonderful way to, to really check. It's like, you know, we call it check your story. Okay. Yeah. You have a story that's normal. Everyone makes up stories about things. Just check it. Hey, I'm checking this. Is, are you upset with me about something? And, and it's so funny how oftentimes you just expressing it will sort of release it for yourself. But then the person comes back and goes, oh, of course not. You know, I, I dropped my phone. <laughs> like, and uh, so, yeah, it, it, that's become a really, it's, you know, and it all ties back to ego and some of these other things, which is very core to Sikhism. Like, you know, the, the concept of Sikhism very fundamentally is getting, is sort of ridding yourself of the ego via meditation, via, via you know, selfless uh, volunteer work. Like there's a series of different things. And there's just so many funny things. Like my coach, you know, he's like, whenever you're starting to feel really um, bad for yourself or like something's going really wrong, that's actually a form of entitlement because somewhere in your mind, you think you, you don't deserve what you're getting or you don't, you know, you, mm-hmm. and, and he goes, and what's the cure? And I go, I don't know. He goes, chop wood and carry water. Um, huh? And, you know, that's his way of saying kind of do selfless volunteer wow. work. Right. And I, I generally, like I'm pretty busy, obviously. And, and most, you know, we hire handymen around the house and stuff to, you know, take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. And my wife, you know, she, some days she doesn't like it because she just wants me to do it. And, and generally I don't, like, I'm just like, I'm busy. But I'll happily you know, coordinate it. But the other day, this was like a few months ago, I was like feeling really low. And I woke up Saturday morning. I go, give me your list of everything you want done around the house. And I just spent like six hours, like changing light bulbs and fixing the kids swings. And, and I was like, oh gosh, this feels so good. You know, like just bringing myself back into the ground and doing stuff. And so anyway, this, these are all just, they're, huh. they're very much crossover, these two themes for me in my life, which has been really, really fun and really powerful. All right. Back to Ampush, you and I were talking about how you, you discovered this type of, this channel for advertising that most people underestimated. And there was a story that you remember of one of the early wins. What was that? Yeah, you know, it's been really fun uh, just to give some kind like now that I'm I'm doing Gateway X, we've you know, we've launched we'll we'll have launched four businesses by the time this year is over. Um and I, you know, I, I realize I love this. I love launching businesses and I can go more into that later, but one of the most fun things of this year is like I haven't really launched a business in 10 years. And so remembering stuff from the early days of Ampush has been one of the fun like our connecting dots even has been a really fun like oh yeah, this was just like that early days. And, you know, we were trying to, to remind you and everyone, like we were doing Google ads, trying to, you know, generate leads for online colleges. At the time, University of Phoenix and Kaplan University were the biggest ad spenders on the planet. And they'd pay you 50 bucks if you got them a qualified lead for master's in education or accounting or any degree program that they were trying to, to offer into the world. And, you know, we were getting our ass handed to us on Google. And, you know, a, a good day would be positive 5% margin and a bad day would be negative 20% margin. It was not going well. And, and we were not geniuses. I mean, we were just like, well, we don't, <laughs> let's try Facebook because this other thing, you know, ain't working. But what we found with Facebook that was interesting in the early days campaign, one of the really days it cracked was, oh, people are telling us who they are. And when you know who someone is, you can offer them a really tailored degree program. So I remember I built some of the earliest campaigns and they were like, let's go, oh, let's go target substitute teachers. Okay. Substitute teachers back then Facebook would tell you exactly how many people were in your audience segment. So it was like 43,000 substitute teachers in America. Then I designed a little ad. And remember this is all on the right rail. This wasn't the mobile. This wasn't newsfeed. 
and it was like sick of being a sub question mark and had like a mean lady with someone throwing a paper airplane at her. And then like the copy said, go back and get your master's in education, check, you know, we'll match you to the best programs. That was like the copy. And man, this thing, like the click through rates were off the charts, the conversion rates were off the charts and they were an 80% margin. So what was a 5% margin was an 80% margin on, on, on Facebook. And then of course I said, Oh, okay. Okay. Substitute teacher work. Okay. Let's do the same ad for math teacher. Let's do the same ad for mm. uh, English teacher. Let's do the same ad for, okay. What are other professions or, or things people might be doing that? And, and in some ways, and, and to tie it back to today, like I'm starting to remember, Oh man. And I said, I say this entrepreneurs, but having started myself, like I'm forgetting certain parts of it. I'm like, innovation is not a big thing. Innovation is a little thing. It's like finding these little things that happen to work and being that close to the granularity that you, that you crack the code on something. So we really were like learning how to market education on Facebook at that time, but not in a way that was obvious to us at that, at the time, it was just like, we got to make this work. We got to figure it out. And so that was like one of the earliest campaigns. And then of course that led to like art, art programs and music. I mean, you could just, you just go program by program of what does a person like and they're interested in how do we build a degree program? And next thing you know, we're spending, you know, that was in June of 2010 by the following year, like 12 months later, we were spending a million bucks a month and and it was extremely profitable. Um, so it was a, it was a crazy time, but also a time that we did crack the code on something quite unique. And this was as an affiliate or did you have a direct relationship with them where they would pay you? We had a direct relationship. It was a mix, like like these things always are. But like with the big guys, we had direct relationships. Um, but in the and, beginning, and you then, were you were paying your own money. It's not like they were paying you money and expecting correct, a, a correct. Cost University per of lead. Phoenix or Kaplan would pay us fifty bucks yeah. every time a qualified lead came through, and we had to take the risk of our own money and yeah. producing those leads. Okay, and so then, at what point did you say, "I think we need to get into direct to consumer"? What's what's the eye opening experience there? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, again, it wasn't an eye opening, like we got a call in Q1 of 2011 and actually there's a book that came out. I should tweet about this. I haven't, you know, there's a book called the billion dollar brand club and there's a whole chapter chapter five called from mad men to math men. And it's all about ambush's founding story. And it's the best version that's ever been told of that story. But um, our account manager at Facebook called us one day and she goes, you know, who are you guys? Like you're one of our top 100 advertisers the senior executives at that time, Facebook was a much smaller company, smaller than Pinterest is today. They said, they want to meet you. They want to understand what you guys are up to, how you're doing this. And we went in there and we came in, you know, we had come from sort of the wall street world. So we came in really buttoned up. We came in with a slide deck, who we are, what our ideas are. And by the end of the meeting, they were like, well, you know what? We're looking for third party partners to, to build software on top of our APIs and go do Facebook ads for anybody. So you know, this, this EDU thing is cool guys, but why don't you, there's a much bigger opportunity here. And we sort of, we bought into that and we became one of the earliest partners of Facebook. And, you know, and, and again, we, we hung out a shingle and said, Hey, well, you can run ads for anybody. And, and it wasn't like, you know, that time if you go back, like gaming and daily deals were really big. And those were two categories we spent a lot of time in. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, along came a company that we almost didn't take on as a client truly named Dollar Shave Club. And, and then, you know, a few months after that, another client that we, 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 we actually did take on was Blue Apron. And then, uh, you know, six months later was Peloton. And so all of a sudden, and then, the, you know, again, these were all Why Series Why weren't you going to take on billion dollar, uh, I mean, uh, Dollar Shape Club? They were tiny. What did you care? Well, you know, we were very thoughtful about our resource investments in, in clients, right? It's, if you take someone on $25,000 a month spender who doesn't grow beyond $25,000 a month, they take up as much resource as a $25,000 a month spender who scales to $250,000 a month. 
And so, you know, partly a junior sales guy brought them in. So that was, I don't, we don't think this is that interesting razors. I don't know. Right. And then I think one of their investors called me and said, Hey, trust me, dude, this is going to be a big business. You guys should take it on. Um, and we said, all right, fine, let's, let's try it. And, you know, literally within three months, it was, it was like four times the size or five times the size. Why do you think um, they, they and, hit it so big so fast? Um, what a great question. You know, I think they had all the things going for them. I, I think they were new. They were early. I think the brand was really like Mike Dubin built a really smart brand there. You know, they were, don't get it twisted though. They had very, very sophisticated people working at the company. I mean, like people who are now, you know, Adam Weber is their CMO. He, he came from P&G and he came from a shaving business, uh, the art of shave. He's now the CMO of a publicly traded company called Varsity Tutors. Um, so, so like they had real, they had real great talent there. And I, you know, I think the other thing that they did really well was they focused on what mattered in a really, like they did not get distracted by shiny objects. They didn't worry about selling a second SKU. They were like focused on what they were doing and scaling what they were doing. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, it was all those things together. Let me take a moment. I'm going to talk about my sponsor. It's for email marketing. It's send in blue. In fact, Jesse, your uh, clients have done email marketing, especially well, you do it now, even on the brands that you own. How about instead of me promoting send in blue, we just give people one tip for email marketing. Do you have one that you would give? Yeah, sure. There's one I heard recently, which I really liked, which is, um, you can send the first email to someone like three or four times if they don't open it. So you, you can build some logic in where if they don't open it, send them the same email with a different subject and then send them uh, another, <laughs> they don't open it to the point where don't worry about it. If they haven't opened it, it means they haven't seen it. They're not, they're not taken by it. So feel free to send the same, same email. All right. Well, send in blue will allow people to do that easily because it is marketing automation, not just straight up email newsletters that you blast out to everyone, but intelligence based on whether people have opened, clicked and what they've told you they were interested in. And frankly, even if they bought, if you want to sign up, you go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. They'll take a discount off of their already low price. But more importantly, if you stick with them, you're going to find that they're not going to jack the price up on you. There's a reason that they've come back to sponsor. My, my audience has signed up because many of you have multiple email lists, you've suffered by signing up for one of these uh, bigger names and you got a great deal in the beginning and it seemed like a great relationship, then they lacked the features and the price was jacked up as your business grew. And so you said, I'm never going to do that again. And the alternative is send in blue. And that's why so many people have signed up in my audience. It's sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. Marketing automation, all the tools that we talked about and also a price that will not suddenly get jacked up as you grow. So I see now how the business grew. When you sold, how big a share of the business did you sell? You know, we sold 20, about 25% of the company uh, to this really interesting business called Red Ventures. And there was a ton of lessons. There are a ton of lessons learned from that experience. Um, the biggest one was like, I think at that point we were ready to sell mentally and emotionally, and we probably should have sold the whole company. And, and, you know, what, what, what happened to us, Red Ventures wanted to buy it, you know, and in the, the benefit of hindsight, I would have really loved to sell to them, work closely with Rick, who's their founder uh, for, you know, he wanted me for three years and, and uh, like, I would have loved to do that. Like now that I look back on it or, or one of the other options we had, what we, you know, one of the learnings and, and coaching has helped me kind of see some of these things is, um, you know, in our mind, we had a valuation and no one quite met that valuation. 
And in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it wouldn't have mattered, right? Let's say, let's just, we wanted to sell, we thought we'd sell for over a hundred million and the best offer was like 65 million. That was bootstrap life-changing for the three of us, no matter what number we sold it at. But we really got uh, disappointed and sad. Like, like that's really the benefit of hindsight. We got pretty disappointed and instead of sort of processing that emotion, probably still making the right choice, we we led it down this interesting path and we ended up selling a minority stake to Red Ventures and we gave them a call option to buy the rest of the business at a, at a predetermined nominal price. It was our sort of way of backing into like, no, no, one day we'll sell for a hundred million because they're not yet willing to give us that, but we'll, we'll prove to them that we're worth that much. And, you know, they, they've, they've been amazing partners, 11 out of 10 on them. I mean, we love them and, and we couldn't have asked for more in that partnership, but you know, they, they went down a very, they started buying publishers and just strategically went down a different route that just didn't make sense. And, uh, you know, the deal actually ended up working out interestingly well. We, we talked about it as a negative earnout. So typically when you sell your company, you, you may get a certain amount of cash up front and then based on your performance, you'll, you'll get more, but if you don't perform, you've sold your company. So that's game over. So I describe this as the opposite of that, which is buy the buy, buy a stake in the business. I'll give you a call option. If I perform, you buy the rest. If I don't, though, I get to retain the ownership of my business. And in this case, you know, it, it emotionally it was a challenge. I'll, I'll tell you that. But like financially, it worked out quite well for us. Um, Why? It means that you have the other seventy five percent of a business that didn't grow to the level you wanted it to, and. Now what is well, that? The mean? business actually did grow fine. They just they just strategically moved their you know they they taught us a lot about how to make money, which was like at the time they invested we were growing at one hundred percent a year, but we were roughly break even on the bottom line. And today we're growing at twenty five percent a year and doing like twenty five percent on the bottom line. So so they really helped us learn how to make the business more profitable uh, in a, in a variety of different and interesting ways. And then they didn't end up buying it, and and it didn't quite perform maybe to where they would have liked it to, or it wasn't a no brainer for them. But like we were left with a very profitable asset <laughs> without any venture of money and with control. And, um, you know, again, and emotionally it was hard because we, I think mentally we were ready to be done and sell it. But, mm-hmm. but again, financially, like the business is a healthy asset that's growing well. And so what, like, and that, it, it kind of worked out again in that, in that context. What did they teach you about making more money? Oh man, this could be a whole episode. Um, you know, I I think I've said this on Twitter and stuff like I think Rick and Red Ventures will ultimately be written about the same way people write about Berkshire Hathaway and 3G Capital. Like, I think they're a very special. He's a very special guy. And their their acquisition is like Lonely Planet is a typical example. CNET might be a better known brand in our community of companies that they've acquired. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's all media, isn't it? Well, well here's the crazy thing. You know, yeah, when they me. invested in us they owned no media assets and that was only in 2015. So in in 2015, they owned what they were was a tech enabled marketing services business that their biggest clients were direct TV and Verizon and what they would do. And, and, and sort of what they taught us was, Hey, instead of being an agency to people, be a, be a partner to them, which means you do anything and everything you can to help them get more customers. So that would mean run the media, run the landing pages. In their case, they run the call centers, so they would literally do the entirety of selling the product to someone. And, and through that process, they became really great at site optimization. They became really good at SEO. They built a very dynamic culture that's like one of the coolest cultures I've ever come in touch with. And I worked at McKinsey and I, I've worked closely with Facebook. So I've like seen great cultures. And, and what was what's crazy about this, like this is the thing that someone ought to write a book about, is they took that capability and culture they, I mean, they pivoted a multi-billion dollar business to start buying publishers. So they bought the points guy and, and they bought Lonely Planet and CNET. 
and they have you know the biz rate it, the I think numbers, right sorry it wasn't biz rate one of their big equity a oh, bank rate excuse me bank rate bank rate was yeah I mean they bought a publicly traded company out from a private equity firm and they've improved it by multiples uh, by pulling these four levers you know one one being traffic acquisition uh, both organic and paid one being on-site optimization one being you know op- partnership like pr- pricing and and really uh, partnering with the brands that, that buy leads from them in a really smart way. And then the last one, just being really thoughtful about culture and staffing, um, you know, and, and not, they're not, they don't, they're not a, a churn and burn type of organization, but they, but they will really staff things like a startup would staff them really, really lean. Um, and those are the four levers and that's what they taught us. I mean, those are the four things they taught us to get really smart about. And I'd say that the, the, the couple other specific things I'd add is, you know, when they, when they invested, we had 60, 70 clients, uh, Ampush today has 20 clients. And so they said, you know, you guys, they did the old 80, 20, they said, you guys would, should work with fewer companies. You should go way deeper with them. And you should, you should also, the, the other thing they taught us was align your compensation to your outcome. So really take risk in your fees and be paid. And not only will it really improve your margins and stuff, but it'll change your culture. And it really did. It really made people much more thoughtful and, uh, smart about how they worked with partners. And then at some point you decided you were going to invest in direct to consumer companies or was it not through Ampush? This was you personally doing it. Am I right? It was a bit, a mix of both. You know, Ampush has invested in a handful. Uh, I've invested in some, you know, obviously we saw the dollar shave clubs at one point, Mike Dubin's like, Hey, do you want to invest? And I was like, ah, I don't know. What do you mean? No. Like I, I was 26 or something and, and I had not a lot of money and, at one point, Ed Baker, the head of growth at Uber, looked at me and said, do you guys want to take some of your compensation in stock? And I was like, I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I need cash, man. I'm trying to hire people. Like, what are you talking about? And so as we reflected on five years, you know, we were like, oh, you know, next time those opportunities come along, we're going to say yes, and we're going to invest in them. And so, you know, we invested in Madison Reed. Uh, that's probably the most successful in terms of just growth multiples and stuff, which is Amy Aray's company. It's a women's hair coloring subscription. We invested in Candid Co., which is teeth aligners. Uh, we invested in Blue Land, um, which is a really cool green, um, green cleaning supplies business. So, so yeah, the, the, as as of 2016, both personally we had some cash, and the business was generating cash flow. The things we learned, and we said, next time these opportunities come along, we're gonna we're gonna write checks, we're gonna get involved in them, um, and that gave us some insights into all the pieces of running them and scaling them. Um, and you know, and, and just kind of finish the story up. Like by 2019 or so, I on the personal front, I wanted to. My wife and I are from St. Louis. We want to raise our kids here. And so we started going, yeah, we kind of want to move cities all before COVID. Uh, so I wanted to move. And then, you know, I, I had run Ampush for quite a while and gone through a lot of pieces of it. And I was kind of having that bug to start new stuff again with all the new things I had learned. Sort of like I, I was, I would say at that time, I was like, 25-year-old Jesse got this far. Like, what could 35-year-old Jesse do that, you know, he knows all this new stuff? Like, what would he start if he could start over? And so those two things came together and I, I you know, culminated literally the month COVID started of me moving to kind of a chairman role at Ampush, uh, having a CEO there. And then, you know, I kind of took most of last year off actually. And then in January started Gateway X, which is this venture studio uh, thing I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. I, I told you before we got started, I don't fully understand it. And you said, me neither. It's you just saying, I think I see something here. I don't know what it is. I'm going to experiment my way through it. Yeah, I think that's a good. I, I think the 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 spirit of it, uh, the why, if you will, for it is like working with my coach. I realized the things that give me 
endless energy are a few things. Ultimately, it's like, it's like, I love helping others learn and grow. And I love using entrepreneurship as the vehicle to do that. In a similar way that you might with your interviews or my Twitter account, that's the thing I could do forever. And I am always re-energized by it. And so I was like, I want to give myself a platform to do that all the time. And the, the kind of sub bullets underneath that writer, I love, I love this idea process of finding an idea, putting the pieces together to figure something out like that substitute teacher thing. Like, I love that. I love it. Uh, right. Yeah. I love the, I love the process of coaching and teaching people to get better. I love getting to know people and building relationships that lead to, you know, human relationship, but also win-wins in, in the business context. And I wanted a vehicle that I could do all those things where that would be what my job would be like. And, and so that's kind of the why behind it. I, you know, the, the strategy was, well, I, I think I have a lot of unfair advantages and I think they show up in primarily two places. One is customer acquisition and growth. So, you know, D2C or businesses broadly that are driven by that consumer business, I think I could start and be very successful in. And then the second one is I actually know these brands and I know what they need and I know their challenges. And I think I could build both software and other services businesses that would sell to the brands. And so I want to start this thing that we're just going to launch, you know, leveraging Jesse's unfair advantages, quote unquote, okay. to, to launch new businesses and with the two, two most distinct parts of it being one that we're going to bootstrap them. They have to get profitable within six months. That's, that's sort of the rule. Okay. Um, and then grow profitably from there. And then the second rule is so far, at least, and I can change the rules is, is like, it's going to be more like red ventures in the sense that it's one culture. Like if you ask somebody where they work, they say gateway acts. They don't say, they don't say CNET even maybe CNET's a little early, but they that's don't. what you're, no, no, no. Yeah. They, anyone who works at red ventures like, and at gateway X, we, everyone works in one company called gateway X that happens to run multiple businesses. Okay. Um, so that's kind of the, the setup that we have and, and what we're trying to figure out. And the goal would be like, could we launch one or two things that grow profitably and successfully and then do it again and then do it again? And, um, and, and the idea is almost inherently are, are, are like, I, I want to say they're anti-venture, but they're not, we think there's a lot of space between the, the mom and pops of the world and like the venture funded of the world that there's just like these, you know, middle market profitable businesses that we could start a lot of, um, for, and like, give me an example of one that exists outside of your universe. Yeah, That's I mean, uh, there's a business called uh, some of the spaces I've played in. Like, there's a business called Golly, G O L I dot com. Mm-hmm. It's the apple cider vinegar. You know, raise no capital, and we'll do 100 million EBITDA this year, from what I've heard. Um, and it's literally just supplements selling apple apple cider vinegar and never raised any money and, and bootstrapped its way in that direction. So that's an example on on one side. Um, there's a business called looks L O O X. That's one of the primary softwares you use for reviews on Shopify. And from, again, the rumors I've heard, it's doing 10 plus million in top line and 5 million. This is software, software for doing reviews on your Shopify store. store. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So these are two different examples. When you look at golly, for example, what's the model here? They're buying ads on social, getting people to come to their site, selling on their site. And then, and then what? Is that it? it. What else? That's it. I mean, I don't think the example, I mean, they're recurring revenue. Like they, they have models of discounting. If you buy multiple SKUs at once, they have subscription. Um, But the key, the key, if you're going to launch a D to C CPG or brand or supplement is like, you basically have to get to first order profitability. Right. And if you can get to first order profitability, so if, if your product is $59 or maybe sometimes 99 because it's you're selling 95 three. at golly. One, one product that I've got in my shopping cart right now is $95. I can even use Afterpay to, to spread out those costs. To split over it up. A few Great. Months. Yeah. So, so if but, it's that's 95 and, and let's just assume they have delivered a 60% gross margin, they're probably higher than that, but let's assume that I mean 60 bucks and 
somehow they blended their CAC down to 40, right? Through Facebook, through email remarketing, through other things. Um, you can print money. I mean, literally just, you, and no, I'm not saying that's easy, by the way. We tried it with a brand right. that didn't work. So it, it's not necessarily easy, but that's the, that's the bar and that's the model. But this uh, is, this is where it is. It's social to Shopify or something like that to recurring revenue. And that's, that's the way they work. Yeah, exactly. Okay. With, right. with a great product. I mean, let's not, let's, let's not over, uh, like over, gobbledygook speak they're selling a product that lots of people want and they've created a brand that's compelling and, and you know they i get it they have a customer that they've probably focused on who really wants this the benefits of this uh thing so you know there's there's real there no, there I, in terms of the product no the, the cleaning supply company that you mentioned earlier i forget the name right now um blue land yeah that it makes total sense that they're they're selling cleaning supplies that is good for the environment. And also they're not shipping big bottles of liquid over to your house. And they're letting you get out of the whole Amazon ecosystem, letting you have something on your counter that makes you feel good instead of makes it feel like the same thing your mom had or your neighbors have. I get I get all that and I don't want to discount it. All right, let me take a moment, talk about my sponsor, and then we'll get into uh, that business that you wrote about on Twitter. To be honest, I didn't read it, the Pooforia uh, tweet storm. I want to find out what happened with Pooforia because it feels like that's an example of what you're trying to do, but also an example of what you're willing to give up if things don't work out. My second sponsor is HostGator for hosting websites. Jesse, is there a content business that you would launch? If I gave you nothing but a HostGator account today and you had to just make it big, is there a content or services business that you would build on top of, say, a Shopify web, excuse me, on top of a, a HostGator website? Yeah, one content business we're we're throwing around, you know, is this idea of like a something specifically built for bootstrapped, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and and both a community and content aspect where we talk about how do you how do you deal with financing in a bank relationship or working capital when you're bootstrapped? How do you deal with okay. with growth marketing where when you're, you're bootstrapped? Well, you're teaching content. You teach the things that you do and then also there's a community where they could yeah, chat something with each like other. that. Yeah. That that's kind of like indie hackers, but you're saying that you've got a different approach to it. What's that? I don't know. Well, I, I think the approach would be to, to provide maybe more proprietary content or things that like I've learned or things that have that specific uh, backing in them. And the other thing that I think is missing in the ecosystem is benefits. Like I think if you went out and, and negotiated with software vendors and other people, you could get a ton of benefits. Like it's crazy that AWS has this like really great package if you're venture funded, but they don't have mm. that for people who are bootstrapped. Like it almost seems backwards to me. So I think with the right clout and right mindset, you could probably negotiate a bunch of things that would help uh, bootstrapped entrepreneurs. All right. Well, there's a model of an idea. If you've got one rattling around your head, the easiest thing to do is to just go create the page for it. See how it feels as you get the business started. And then if you don't like it, you can cancel and move on. If you do love it, you can grow and HostGator will grow with you. Here's a URL where you can get an discount on their already low price and a service that you can count on. I know I do at Mixergy. We're hosted on HostGator. The URL is hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Hostgator.com slash Mixergy. All right. Puforia. What was Puforia? So Puforia was, uh, is, it's still around. It's a supplement business for digestion. And, you know, in January, February of this year, I, I, I had, I was talking to a bunch of companies. I was going to buy a couple of D2C businesses and, uh, you know, I just listened to my heart and I said, I'm, I'm just not excited about this. I want to, I want to learn. I want to build. And, and so I was talking to my wife one evening and I was like, you know, she's like, what makes a good DTC business? I was like, you know, greater than 60% gross margin subscription solves a real problem. Um, I also kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could growth market and performance market, almost anything. 
and that I didn't, you know, I could be fast and aggressive with it. And so, you know, we were kind of joking. She's like, you're always calling your uncle because you have like reflux and all these weird, you know, things going on with your digestion. Like, why don't you look into that space? And so I call my uncle and I'm like, hey, you know, tell me more about all this. Like, like what solves these problems? What's the miracle drug? Is there a drug I could prescribe? Like, I want to be the hymns of this space. And he was like, you know, you don't need any drugs. You just need a good diet. And I was like, yeah, but what do people actually do? And he, and he shared this insight with me, which was kind of interesting, was he's like, you know, the funny thing, Jesse, is that like pooping is the most important part of your digestion. And I go, oh, interesting. Tell me more. Like, he goes, well, if you, as long as you're passing regularly, you're going to the bathroom, most of, like most of those issues are due to a conveyor belt, you know, backup. That's what, that's like acid reflux. Oftentimes you don't need a pill for it. You just need to make sure you're, you're going regularly. So I was like, that's, I've never heard anyone say that before. That's interesting. I was like, all right, well, what's the happy meal? And he, you know, these, these specific probiotics are really good and, you know, take fiber and actually magnesium is a really, really great uh, thing that, that you can mix in with there. So I was like, great, I have my products. Like I, I was, I was in super decisive mode. I was like, great, I'm going to sell that. That sounds good. Then I, you know, one late night of stumbling around the internet, like I found that there's actually a term that doctors use for like that really good feeling you get called puforia. And I'm like, oh, that's the best name ever. Okay. We're going to like, we're going to buy that to me. We're going to launch. So you know, I, I launched and 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 I, I wanted to get it out into the world, out into the market, and start performance marketing against it. And, and you know, we built the whole thing in less than four months, and for like less than probably thirty, forty thousand dollars. Like it was, and that was including maybe say paying a bunch of contractors to design stuff and to get the supply, you know, supply chain up and running. Supply chain was a little bit challenging. Um, and you know, when, when I think back on it, everyone kept saying, "Well, who's the customer? Who am I talking to?" And I, I sort of just totally disregarded that. I was like, ah, "Don't worry about the customer. We're going to run ads. We're going to, well, you know, we're going to figure it out." And I'd say, like, ultimately, the you know what we found was the space is much more crowded than I think we appreciated. The humor aspect was—I don't know that we quite nailed it. It wasn't quite Dollar Shave Club level. Um, and you know, we, we got. And to be fair to us, we got the economics down to three to four months of a payback. So, you know, we got, I think our CAC was like 80 bucks or something like that. And, and if you got to our, we had a $70 bundle, uh, we had a decent, you know, decent retention, not the best, but not, not bad by any means. And so would you start off now by going back to customers and saying, who's the customer who doesn't have a big problem, who just wants to do better? We're going to find a way to talk to them. Is that the answer? Not exactly. So we, we, we ended up talking to a ton of customers and what we learned First of all, 75% of the customers who bought Puforia were women, which was shocked mm-hmm. us, which really surprised us. And then we went and talked to a lot of those women and did other kind of customer research things. And we realized that um, they don't like talking about mm-hmm. poop. And, and we tried a couple of ads and examples where we said, well, what about this? This is an empowering. And, you know, and, no, I don't like this. And we realized that lots of women suffer from digestive issues. Um, and they have a code word that they use for it that we found, which is bloating which is not a thing men Ooh, typically know. Okay. And so we started to go really deep down the rat hole and, and designed actually a whole thing uh, with a doctor. We went and found a, a legit female doctor who knew that, you know, we, we went a little deeper and we said, okay, we're going to design a solution for that problem. And, and we've, you know, we've designed an entire product uh, and it's a single product. So there's not multiple SKUs, it's not confusing. It's much more straightforward and it's very focused on solving bloating for women in particular. And so that will be out in early How December. Do you, when you say you talk yeah. to customers, do you mean you personally, Jesse, or who's talking to customers about this? Sure. It's you. Yeah, me. There's a couple of folks on my team. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we we definitely are trying to cultivate the like, uh, everyone talk to five customers a week sort of okay. ma- mantra. And the other thing that we're doing, I think you'll like this too, Andrew. Like I'm, I'm you know, I grew up as more B2B and still I'd say I, I know that world better. 
Like I've been trying to sell it to customers one-to-one okay. <laughs> simply to the point of like, if I can't convince a human who's giving me 15 minutes of their time to buy it, well, how am I going to do that with, with an ad or with marketing? Like I, I, I have to know the story and the team has to know the story in such depth and detail that we can tell it and convince someone if we can't do that. Like, and then how, luck, wait, how are you talking to existing customers and how are you talking to customers that you're trying to sell to? Can you give me an example of a customer that hasn't bought that you try to sell to in a call and, and test the language? Yeah, so the new brand is going to be called unbloat.me. Um, and we have a wait list up there. So that's how we're 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 attracting people to that via some via email, you know, some we're trying some stuff on TikTok. We're really focused on TikTok right now. Um, and we're driving people to sign up for emails and we're reaching out and saying, Hey, will you talk to us? Will you buy this? And Puforia, we have, I don't know, two hundred some odd subscribers, and we probably have another two hundred people who come to the site and buy it every month. And and so that there we're just talking to them very directly about stuff. Oh, wow. All right. So then you they get on the wait list. You contact them. You get on a call with them and say, here's what we're working on and see what excites them. You do. Do you do video the way I do? I find that watching people's eyes when I talk is so revealing. You can see someone going, oh, yes, this is the thing I've always been waiting for versus like, oh, yeah, that's a clever idea. You know, and, and there's a very different or- orientation for that. Okay. And then <laughs> and with Puforia, you will actually s- – one of the weird things is people will say to me in interviews, go talk to customers. Nobody wants to take a phone call from anybody. Schwab has been my my bank account forever. I was so rude. I got a call from someone at Schwab. I go, why are you even calling me? I didn't say it like that, but the attitude was, why are you even calling me? I, I, so how do you get somebody to take your call when you're doing poop? It is hard. No, no, no. It's hard. It's, I mean, right. people don't want to talk about it. And so it, it has been hard. I think we've, we've thrown incentives at people to talk to us. We like here's an Amazon gift card or discount off your night. Like, so we've done what we can to get the right people on there. Um, I also resorted at one point to just cold calling and that was very effective. Like we have their phone numbers. They bought something from us. And so I just said, let's just call them. And I said, Oh, hi, Mary, is that you? Hi, I'm, I'm so-and-so like, and I humanized myself within three seconds. So I was like a real person and, and she's like, Oh, sure. Yeah, I'll tell you. Da, 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 da. Or like people who called in to complain or cancel, that was a big opportunity to to talk to people or we put them through a little form to answer questions. So we did our best to get as much of that stuff as we could. 